What a wonderful truth that uh, the Lord does satisfy us. Thank you very much. Wonderful. I want to say uh, just a personal word of appreciation for uh, Lem and Eleanor being with us today. I don't really know them, but I know the Voice of Calvary ministry pretty well. For six years, I used to take teams down there when we were still in Mendenhall, and um, we had, to put it mildly, some pretty interesting experiences. Um, I was in Jackson the night, in fact, I was meeting with a guy named Charles Evers, whom you no doubt know. Uh, he was the first black mayor in the South in Fayetteville, and I was meeting with him the night that Martin Luther King was shot. And all Jackson broke loose in just an incredible uh, display of uh, fear and hostility and, and all of that kind of thing. And in the midst of all of that action, God had already placed the Voice of Calvary ministry in this little town called Mendenhall. And uh, they had begun to reach out to people. I'll never forget that the pastor of a white church there, First Baptist Church of Mendenhall, I don't know if John ever told you the story, he started a Bible study with a black custodian at the church. And when he started that Bible study with a black custodian, he couldn't buy groceries, he couldn't buy gas, he, could, he got his insurance canceled, um, his kids were hassled at school, he had a nervous breakdown, they took him to the hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, and within three days that he was there, he dove out of the window and killed himself. That's how volatile the hostilities were. And what I was doing down there with a few other guys, we had a musical team, and we were singing and doing all kinds of crazy things. We were holding assemblies in all the black high schools all across Mississippi, and our whole agenda was to give the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we had a tremendous time, and in fact, some of the people who came from there came to this college, names that you can see out on the sports um, trophy area, Dolphus Weary, Jimmy Walker, and others. So this college became a point of contact as we began to send kids back even in those years. And we've been thankful to the Lord for that ministry and the way God used John Perkins who started it and now Dolphus Weary, Artis Fletcher and uh, Lem Tucker who are all laboring together down in that area. And I know God is blessing in a wonderful way so uh, send my greetings back to the guys I know, would you? And thank you for your ministry. I want to share with you this morning a little bit out of 1 Timothy chapter 2 as we think about day of prayer. I hope you'll be praying in the next couple of days. Uh, myself, Dr. Stead, and uh, Charles Smith are flying up to the Bay Area in a couple of hours because we have to go before the accrediting association and uh, tell them why we started a seminary. And so we're going to have a good time on the next couple of days trying to give them a vision for spiritual ministry and building godly men. And that should prove to be very exciting. So pray for us as we meet with them in the next couple of days. But I want us to look particularly at um, one area of our prayer life that I think is very, very important. Most of us, certainly myself and probably most of you, are very much aware of the fact that prayer plays a dynamic part in the salvation of lost people. When you want to see someone come to Christ, what's the first thing you do? What do you do for them? Pray for them, right? I mean, that's just pretty natural. That, that is sort of a, an implicit um, belief that salvation is a sovereign act of God, right? I mean, you may, you may want to believe yourself not to be a full Calvinist, but when you pray for the salvation of someone, you are by that prayer acknowledging that God is sovereign in redemption. 
And we believe that. We believe that, and it's implicit in our prayer life. It's implicit in the way we approach salvation uh, for someone who doesn't know Christ. The first thing we do is pray for them. I remember when I was in college, a guy came along and he gave a seminar and he said, there's nowhere in the scripture that it says we're to pray for lost people. He said, and I remember this vividly because it came out later in a book that he wrote. He said, we are only to pray that the Lord would send forth laborers. There's nothing in scripture to indicate that we are to pray for people who aren't saved. That didn't hit me right. So I went back to my Bible and I found he was wrong. There are lots of places where we find that the Word of God outlines for us the importance of praying for lost people. You can go all the way back, for example, into chapter 11 of Numbers through chapter 14, and you'll find Moses praying for unbelieving, complaining, unthankful Israel not to be consumed by the fire of God's judgment because of their unbelief. In chapter 14, verse 19, Moses said, Pardon, praying to God, pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy mercy. He was praying for the salvation of wayward Jews among his people. In 1 Samuel, and I'm just giving you a few suggestions, in 1 Samuel, back in chapter 12, you perhaps have heard this verse or read it yourself verse 23 moreover says Samuel as for me far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you in other words he says if I don't pray for you I'm sinning against the Lord and then he says fear the Lord now what does that mean that's a call to saving faith that is a call to saving faith Fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he's done for you. And if you continue to do wickedly, both you and your king will be swept away. That's a prayer for their salvation. That they would fear God. They would serve him in truth. The prophet Jeremiah gives us another illustration of praying for lost people in chapter 7. I think it starts about verse 13 and maybe runs through verse 16. He says, beginning in verse 13, And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to this house, that is the house of whom he speaks, those who are a part of the people of God, but not the worship of God which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. In other words, it says, uh, I'm speaking to you, you're not listening, and if you don't listen, then I'm going to judge you. And then verse 16, as for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. In other words, this is kind of backing into the issue. He's saying, you are so far gone, it's too late to pray. So rather than saying, pray for this people, he says, stop praying for this people, assuming that they were doing that. So there, in a sort of a backhanded way, you have an indication that it was a pretty normal thing for people to pray for those who were lost, those who were unredeemed, those who were in line for the judgment of God. 
In chapter 14, verse 10, thus says the Lord to this people, even so they have loved to wander, they have not kept their feet in check. Speaking of again the wayward apostate Jews, therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. And the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Boy, what a fearful thought. They're so far gone, I'm telling you, don't pray for them. There's only two times in the Bible that's really brought up. The other time is in 1 John where he says there are some Christians who can sin so repeatedly that it's no use for you to pray for them because they've sinned the sin unto what? Unto death. When God says stop praying, the assumption is that if he didn't say stop, you'd keep on doing it. Prayer for people who are outside God's saving grace is a common thing. It's an accepted thing. It's a normal thing. The psalmist in Psalm 25, 22 cried out, redeem, O uh, redeem, O God, Israel, save your people. Samuel called all the sinning people of Israel to gather at Mizpah, and he called for them to be willing to return to the Lord with all their hearts. And he said, if you are willing to do, do that, I will pray for you. I'll pray for your salvation. Praying for the salvation of people is a very, very basic part of Christian experience. Back in the Old Testament again, Hezekiah the king, knowing the wicked hearts of his people, gathered at Jerusalem for Passover and knowing that they had not, as he puts it, cleansed themselves, prayed for them. Second Chronicles 30 verses 18 and 19 says that this is what Hezekiah said. The good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. So the Old Testament saints prayed often, prayed consistently for the salvation of people. Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, as we saw a few weeks ago, we looked at that chapter, verses 17 to 19, prays for the salvation of those who are wayward. Stephen, <clears throat> chapter 7 of the book of Acts, you remember he's being crushed with the stones, and uh, he prayed, and what did he say? Lay not this sin to their charge, which being interpreted means forgive them. Don't hold this to their account. Be merciful to them. Be gracious to them. Save them from the consequence of this sin. The Apostle Paul has that tremendous burden for the lost Jews that we see among some that I just read from the Old Testament in Romans. Look at verse 1 to 3 in chapter 9 for a moment. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. Imagine that. He says, I could wish myself to be damned if it would mean the salvation of others. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now, hell, anybody could say nothing in the Bible says to pray for the lost. I don't know. I don't know. My prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Let me ask you the question. When's the last time you prayed for someone's salvation? Someone specific. Were they saved? Some of you are smiling. Probably were. Not in every case, but we are called to pray in every case. The fullest explanation, however, of praying for the lost is found in 1 Timothy 2, so let's look at it. And, and there are several points that I want to give, and obviously we'll just touch lightly on them, and you can study them on your own time. This is what I call evangelistic praying. 
You may not be able to preach. You may not be called to teach. You may not be called to carry the gospel to the ends of the world. You may never be one who articulates the gospel or designs it to be presented through the media. But you, every one of you, are called to the responsibility of evangelistic praying. Of praying for unsaved people. And we see this here. Notice in verse 1, first of all, that's the beginning. Now, why is that there? Paul has given an introduction in his letter to Timothy in the first 20 verses. Timothy is uh, holding forth in Ephesus right now. The Ephesian church has defected from its original strength. You remember the Ephesian church? Who was the founder of the church at Ephesus? Paul, the first pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul, he was there for three years building that church. He trained the elders, built the elders up, nurtured the elders, and set them in place. And in the intervening maybe eight years since all that was in place, that church has gone down the tubes. They have ungodly leadership. They have confused leadership. They're having false teaching. There are people usurping the role of leadership who don't belong there. Lots of problems. And so he writes this epistle to set things straight in the church. That's basically the object of this epistle. Chapter 3, verse 15 articulates that. To set things straight in the church. And after the opening chapter which introduces the issue, the first subject that he wants to talk about is this matter of evangelistic praying. So he says, first of all then, I urge. The first subject on my agenda has to do with praying for lost people. And the first thing we see here is what we'll call the nature of evangelistic praying, okay? If you want to take that down. The nature of evangelistic praying. And it flows out of the words that he uses. First of all then, I urge, and the word urge, by the way, is a word of passion. It's not so much the word of command as it is the word of pleading. It comes more from the heart than it does from the authority. So he says, I urge that, and he uses four words for prayer. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings. Those four words give us the nature of evangelistic prayer. They identify for us the the elements that make up prayer. The first is the word entreaties, or some Bibles will say supplications. You've heard that word. That word originally meant, in the Greek language, um, a guy, it was used to describe a guy who came to get something from a king. It speaks of an inferior asking for something from a superior. It is a word that basically comes from a verb root that means to lack, or to be in want, or to have not. So here comes the have not to the have. Here comes the lacking to the guy who's got it all. Here comes the the inferior to the superior, superior. And he is requesting and asking and begging and petitioning for something that is a need. That is a need. If we carry that into the idea of of evangelistic praying, what we're basically coming before God with is the fact that someone has a great need which only God can supply, right? And so we go to God as the Savior with the people who need to be saved, and that's the essence of what that word's all about. It carries the idea, then, of coming into the presence of a king. In fact, the ancient use of that word referred to an olive branch, and they would bring an olive branch as a symbol of peace. And so here we come into the presence of God, who has the supply, and we bring the needy sinner who has the need. That's entreaty, that's supplication. The second word is translated prayers, prasukai, it's a familiar word. It has an idea in it of sacredness, reverence, and worship. 
It sort of has the implication of bowing down. It's used in scripture, by the way, only for prayer offered to the true God. So it has in it the idea of the majesty and the holiness and the awesomeness and the character of God. So in our prayers, we are acknowledging the sacredness of God. We then come to the one who is the Savior, bringing the sinner and recognizing the majesty and the holiness and the sovereignty of God and that he has the right to do what he will do. And so, though we plead with God for the, for the unredeemed person, we affirm the sovereignty of God in response to that prayer, right? So we come pleading, but we come with our pleading contained within the acknowledgement that God is sovereign and has every right to do exactly what he wants us to do. That's the way to pray. We're not trying to convince God against his will, are we? We're not trying to badger him so he'll change his mind. We're coming submissively to one who is the eternal, almighty, sovereign, holy God who never makes a mistake, is too, uh, too loving to ever be unnecessarily unkind, too wise to ever do anything wrong. And we plead for the sinner and we plead within the context of God's eternal, sovereign purpose. The third word expands even further our understanding of the nature of prayer, and that's the word petitions or intercessions, case. It suggests, it suggests an identification with the person. It's a beautiful word. It literally means to fall in with someone or to draw near to someone or to converse intimately with someone. And here, prayer is seen as, as putting oneself right in the middle of the need of someone else. Right in the heart of someone else. It's the idea of holding sacred communion with sovereign God, pleading for the salvation of a person whose lostness we actually feel. Okay? Whose lostness we feel. Because we have a deep compassion for that person. It's throwing him, it's throwing oneself into the person's situation. It's precisely the word used in Romans 8, 26. Do you remember that verse? And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself does what? Intercedes for us with unutterable groanings. Same word, intercedes, means the Spirit is so immersed in our need that he groans in the same concern that we carry. That's identification. And I confess to you, and I think we would all have to look at our hearts about this, that we can become very cold, can't we, about the lostness of people. We can come away to a school like this and get so wrapped up in what's going on here that we lose touch with the lostness of people. And we lose that compassion. And that compassion is a motivator. By the way, it's the same word used in Hebrews where it talks about Christ being our high priest who intercedes with us, who literally falls in with us, who draws near to us, who becomes so intimately involved in our pain and our needs that the cry of our heart becomes the cry of his heart. That's the nature of evangelistic praying. And there's one final word, and that's thanksgivings. 
That's Thanksgiving. We get the word Eucharist from that, which means benediction. That's the true spirit of prayer. Whatever God does, we do what? We thank Him. If He saves that person, we thank Him. If that person goes on in unbelief, we say, God, you must have a purpose in that. That must be within the frame of your will. We thank you. We bless you. In Romans 9, it says, what if? What if God, willing to show his wrath, allowed vessels to be fitted to destruction? Doesn't God have a right to do that too? That's a heavy doctrine. But in all our prayers, a spirit of thanksgiving. Always. So what is the nature then of evangelistic praying? We go to God who has the supply and we take the sinner who has the need. We plead for that sinner, but always with a sense of the sovereignty of God. We plead to the point where we are really immersed in the pain of that person's lostness. And whatever God chooses to do, we give him what? Thanks. That's the nature of evangelistic praying. Now, what about the scope of it? This is the power of the passage right here. What about the scope of it? How extensive is this? Verse 1. He says, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of most people. You know what it says? What does it say? All men. You say, well, wait a minute, all men aren't elect. Yeah, then somebody said that to Spurgeon and he said, well, I'll just keep preaching to all of them until somebody pulls up their shirt tail and sees an E stamped on their back. I don't know who the elect are. So my calling is to pray for what? For all men. There's no limitation on my prayer life. Any more than there's any limitation on my, on my ministry of witnessing. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to what? Every creature. So all men is absolutely unlimited. And by the way, it's reinforced in verse 4. He desires all men to be saved. And verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all men. All men are to be prayed for. Now, Paul gives us one category of all men here, a, a, a unique one in verse 2, including kings and all who are in authority, including kings and all who are in authority. Why does he say that? He said all men, that covered it. Yeah, but the people that it was hardest to pray for were the, the authorities. Why? Because they were hostile to the Christian faith. And so the tendency was to pray for new leaders. That we had, you say, boy, that sounds familiar. Sure, what do we do in America? Do we have a concerted campaign from one end of America to the other to pray for the salvation of our leaders? Or do we have a concerted campaign politically to remove the ones that are there and get the ones we want in? That's not the biblical approach. The biblical approach isn't to build, quote-unquote, some massive political lobby who can replace all the leaders. The biblical approach is to pray for the salvation of the ones that are there. And instead of Christians being looked at as a political power block trying to change the structure and get people out of power, imagine what would happen if the world saw us and if America saw us as people incessantly on our knees praying for the spiritual salvation of our leaders. See, we have a reputation now that's a million miles from that. Because Christians have created power systems to try to change the structure. 
Instead of falling on their knees consistently and having the whole of the leaders of this nation know that these Christians are incessantly praying for our salvation. Let's get it right. I mean, that's what the Russians do. I've talked to Georgie Vins and I said, what do you do living in Russia? He says, we just pray for the salvation of our leaders. And he said, if we're ever going to be persecuted, it won't be because of a political view. It will be because we exalted Jesus Christ. We keep that real clear. So here's a sample group, and these are the tough ones to pray for. Kings, by the way, you know who was the leading, the king? The, it's a synonym for emperor. You know who the king was here? Nero. Be easy to say, let's pray that he'll get killed. Let's pray that he'll be dethroned. Pray for them. All in authority. Officials, magistrates, judges, proconsuls, tetrarchs, generals, governors, town clerks, good, bad, beneficent, cruel, peaceful, warlike. Pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Boy, would I love to see the whole approach to the American picture change from Christians trying to lobby to get political change and put new people in power to Christians consistently and concertedly praying for the salvation of the people that are there. What a testimony that would be, wouldn't it? It would be fantastic. And by the way, you can check some, if you ever get into the early church fathers, some of the second and third century documents of the early church, and you see that normal worship in the church included prayer for the salvation of leaders. Not just God bless the president, help him to make right decisions, but God save the president from his sins. That kind of praying. Less political activity and more prayer. Let me show you an interesting illustration of praying for people. Look at Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now when they heard this, and that is the people who were sitting, or sitting and standing around listening to Stephen, who was really laying it on them. And he was full of the Holy Spirit, you know. But when they heard it in verse 54... They were cut to the quick. Now, that's a preacher's dream, folks. All a preacher ever wants is to cut people to the quick. <laughs> you know, and uh, they began gnashing their teeth at him. That's not necessarily what the preacher wants, but that often goes with it. You cut them to the quick and they may gnash their teeth at you. But that's all right. You know, um, that's kind of exciting. You know you made a wave, right? You know you generated conviction. And so he was full of the Holy Spirit and he gazed intently into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I mean, this is really getting to be a pretty euphoric situation. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. God's preparing to receive Stephen into his presence. They cried with a loud voice, covered their ears. They were intellectuals, you know, didn't want to hear truth. And they rushed on him with one impulse, mob violence. And when they'd driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. They'd throw him off a three to five to ten foot precipice. And when he fell down, they'd pick up huge boulders and, and they'd drop them over the precipice and crush his head. And then his body. And when they were doing this, the witnesses were laying their robes at the feet of a young man named what? Who's that? Paul. What was he doing there? Maybe throwing rocks. And they went on stoning Stephen... As he called upon the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, get him. Is that what he said? Let him have it. Burn him up. 
Lord Jesus, he said, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What was he praying for? If God doesn't hold sin against you, what does that mean? You must be forgiven. And if you're forgiven, you're what? You say he's praying for their salvation. Could it be? Verse 1 of chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Could it possibly be that the conversion of Saul was an answer to the prayer of Stephen? I think so. Because I think God incorporates our prayers in his sovereign purposes. And I think Stephen, for all eternity, will have a special joy because in his own life being crushed out, he prayed for the salvation of those who took his life and one of them became the greatest apostle the world has ever known. And could it be that in Acts 16, when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail, and what were they doing all night? Singing and what? And praying and who got saved? The jailer and his whole family. Could it be that the salvation of the jailer and the whole family was a direct result of the prayers of Paul and Silas? I think so. That's exciting. Spurgeon said the soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. Because it's not that prayer changes God's plan, it's that God redeems people through the means of prayer. And our Lord himself taught us to intercede for the lost. How about this? Didn't he say in Matthew 5, 43? You have heard it. It was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And what's the next line? Pray for those who persecute. Stephen did it, didn't he? So, the nature of prayer we see, and the scope of prayer, we pray for what? Everybody. We don't know who God's going to choose. Look at the benefit of it. Verse 2. The benefit of it. And this is just tremendous. In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life, in all godliness and dignity. And I go back to what I said earlier. If we want to have a, an environment of tranquility and an environment of peace where we can live godly and pious lives that are honorable before the Lord, then what we need to do is not try to change the political structure, but pray for the salvation of the leaders. That's what he's saying. Quiet, or the first word there, tranquil, is the idea of outside disturbances. The next word is the idea of inside disturbances. And so he says, if you pray for the salvation of all men, especially praying for the salvation of all your leaders, it's going to bring about an internal and external tranquility in your environment that will do nothing but enhance the opportunities for evangelism. It's just going to increase them. So we seek to make the leaders our friends by praying for them rather than our enemies by rejecting and trying to replace them. Believers should be model citizens, compassionate, caring, praying diligently with all love for the salvation of all men. 
so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. That means reverence and moral integrity. And this provides for us an environment, I think, where the gospel expands, where the gospel grows. Now listen, this is the word of God, folks. And I think this is what God is giving us by way of promise. The church can know a quiet and tranquil life and a stable kind of godliness and moral integrity. It can have the environment for the advance of the gospel if it gets on its knees and prays for the salvation of people. Boy, that's just a basic, basic truth. Let me show you a fourth point in verse 3. The reason for evangelistic praying. The reason. First reason. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Let's take that first phrase. This is what? What's the word? Good. The first reason to pray for lost people is it's good. What does good mean? That's the word kalan. It means intrinsically excellent. It means morally beneficial. We ought to pray for the lost people because it's good by God's definition. It's good. We are obligated to pray for all men because it's good as opposed to bad, because it's beneficial to them. That's the idea. Do we have to explain that? <laughs> Is it more beneficial to be saved or lost? More beneficial to go to heaven or hell? More beneficial to know God or not know God? More beneficial to have Christ dwell within you or not? It's beneficial. So you can pray for the lost for their sake. For their sake. Secondly, it's consistent with God's will. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. The word acceptable, apodecamai, means to receive with satisfaction. It's appreciated by God. Why? Because He's a Savior. So we need to pray for people's salvation because that's what God wants who is a Savior. That fits his character, that fits his will, that's consistent with his will. And verse 4 says, this is a dynamic statement. Who desires, what? All men to be what? Saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we, we pray because it's morally right to do so. We pray because it's consistent with God's will as Savior who desires all men to be saved. God is not willing, says Peter, that any should perish. And while on the one hand God chooses those who are redeemed by His sovereignty, on the other hand, those who refuse Him, refuse Him because they choose to refuse Him. I don't understand the harmony of that. God didn't ask me to understand it. If I understood everything about that, I'd be God. And if I was God, everybody would be in a lot of trouble. So you leave some things in the, in the infinite mind of God. People always want to ask me, how can you say that people that are saved are saved because they're chosen by God before the foundation of the world, predetermined to salvation, sovereignly elected, and only those God chooses, only who the Father draws will be redeemed. How can you say that? And on the other hand, say men are responsible for their unbelief. And the answer is, it's easy for me to say that because that's exactly what the Bible said. You say, how do you harmonize that? Not very well. But then again, that doesn't bother me either because the Bible is full of things like that. Ask you a simple question. We're reading 1 Timothy. Who wrote 1 Timothy? 1 Timothy. 
Paul? How many feel Paul wrote first Timothy? Anybody else have a suggestion? Holy Spirit? Was every word out of the vocabulary in the heart and the mind of Paul? Was every word out of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? How could it be all Paul and all the Holy Spirit? I don't know. Let me ask you another question. Is Jesus God or man? Yes. How can he be all God and all man? I don't know. Let me ask you another question. Who lives your Christian life? You say, I do. Oh. You say, not I, but Christ. Oh. You just lie around and he does it. You say, go, Lord. What are you saying? Who lives it? You say, well, um, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I. Christ lives in me. Paul says, I beat my body to bring it into subjection. And he turns right around and says, walk in the Spirit. I don't know. I just know it takes all of him and all of me. And when something goes wrong, it's me. And when something goes right, it's him. I can live with that. (laughs) Well, it's the same thing. I mean, we have that tension, don't we? Because the mind of God is infinite. And we can't reduce God to our puny little mind. And that's one of the greatest proofs of the inspiration of Scripture, is that it doesn't resolve all those issues. If it did, it would be a man-made book. But it leaves us with so many of these tremendous mysteries. And if you try to figure them out, you'll find yourself under the bed saying the Greek alphabet. (laughs) Just don't try it. I don't have any problem at all with that the Bible says God desires all men to be saved. My God's heart of love and compassion does not design men for eternal hell. They go there because of their sin. And because they do not believe. The Spirit comes, John 16, to convict the world of sin because they believe not on me. Now, I can't harmonize all of that, but I do know the heart of God is the heart of a Savior who desires to save all men. So why do we pray for all men? Because it's good for all men to be saved and because it's consistent with God's compassionate desire for them. That's, that's not an easy thing to understand. You can get a little bit of help if you understand that when it says here, God desires all men to be saved, it uses the word thelo, which is a word to wish or a desire of emotion and not bulamai, which is a word of decree. God does not decree that, but God desires that. And those delineations are beyond my ability to grasp. All I know is, as I said earlier, that when people are lost and go to hell, it is because they choose not to believe. And when people are saved and go to heaven, it is because they were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And I don't have to harmonize that. Someday in glory, the Lord will make it very clear how that comes together. So he desires to be the savior of all men. It's consistent with his will. Look at verse 5. It is reflective of his nature. Verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How many gods are there? One God. How many mediators? One mediator, Christ. Contrary to the religions of mankind, there is not one God for the Muslims, one God for the Buddhists, one God for the Jews, one God for the Christians, and even one God for the atheist self. There isn't a God for everybody. There isn't uh, a million gods for all the Hindus that want their own God. 
The point is there's only one God. You see, if there were many gods, then there would be many ways of what? Of salvation. And everybody could be on their own and everybody could have their own God and have their own salvation. So we wouldn't have to evangelize anybody. Right? We'd say, hey, you Muslims got your God. Go for it. You Buddhists have your God. So you're all right. By the way, that's what most people think, don't they? And they say the thing that really matters is not what God you worship, but are you sincere? Are you sincere? Sincerity is a bad test of truth. Bad test of truth. You go lay down in the middle of I-5, you may be very sincere. You may think that's a religious experience. <laughs> They'll mop you up. Sincerity is not the issue. There's only one God. Now listen carefully. There's only one God. There's only one Savior. God alone is the source of salvation. And I don't care who you are or where you live or when you live. The only way you'll ever be saved is through the one mediator to the one God. And that is why God desires that all men hear the gospel. And that we pray for the salvation of all men. Because all men have to come the same way to the same God. You see? There's only one God. He is the God of all men. There are no other gods. He tolerates no other gods. There's only one mediator. And since the one God desires all men to be saved, we are to pray for all men. And that's consistent with his nature. So he's throwing in here the unity of God to give us a clear understanding that we have to pray for the salvation of all men because all men must come the same way through the true God. Fourthly, he says it's consistent with the person of Christ. There's only one mediator. There aren't many mediators. There aren't many aeons or emanations or, or stepladder sort of demigods or angelic beings that you filter through. There aren't many saints like Mary and Joseph and St. Ignatius and whoever. There aren't many intermediaries. There's only one. So it's consistent with the person of Christ. Furthermore, look at verse 6. It's consistent with the work of Christ because he gave himself a ransom for what? What's the word? For all. He died for all. You say, you mean Jesus died on the cross for the whole world? He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world, it says in 1 John. You see, his death is sufficient to bear the sins of the whole world, but it is only efficacious to those who believe. So people say to me, do you believe in an unlimited atonement? I believe in a limited, unlimited atonement or an unlimited, limited atonement. It just depends on how you want to look at it. I believe that the death of Jesus Christ would have been sufficient for the sins of any person and is sufficient for the sins of any person who comes in faith to believe. But it's only applied to those who are the called and the faithful. So the intention of the atoning work of Christ is very simple. He was a ransom for all. He came at the proper time to die for all. And therefore, he's the only way to God. And there's only one God. And so we have to pray for all men to come through the right mediator to the right God. That's why we have to be engaged in evangelistic praying. And then finally, in this little list, verse 7, it fits Paul's own calling. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. What does he mean by this? Now follow the thought. It's really a tremendous thought. He says, I am an apostle called to do one thing. 
preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the point, the argument goes like this. We are to pray for the lost because it's morally right, because it's the will of God for all men, because he is the one God of all men and the only God who can save them, because Christ is the one mediator for all men and died as a ransom for all men, and because we are called to preach to all men. He's trying to show the singular nature of the salvation message. God desires all men to be saved, and we are to pray for that to happen. And we really went over that fast. And then a final thought, just to pull it together, the attitude of evangelistic praying. Verse 8. And I like to think that verse 8 is linked with the first part of the chapter rather than the second half. What is the attitude? Verse 8, therefore... I want the men, and that because in the early church, as they carried on the tradition of the Jews, the prayers in public were by men. No woman ever prayed publicly in a synagogue. And he says, I will, and here is not the will of wish, it's not fellow, it's bulamite, it's the will of decree. He says, I want that men pray. And this means males, it's the word andras rather than anthropos, which is more generic. I want men to pray as a habitual practice. In every place, what does that mean? Wherever the church meets and whenever the church meets, whether it meets in small groups or large groups, I want men to pray. And what is it they're praying about? What's the subject here? Evangelistic praying. I want them to pray. But here's the attitude. Lifting up what kind of hands? Holy hands. You ever see a holy hand? That's symbolic, isn't it? I never met anybody with a holy hand. Let me see your holy hand. I don't know what a holy hand is. What he means is morally right. With a right, with a right ethical, spiritual behavior and conduct. To put it simply, in Psalm 66, 18 terms, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So if I'm going to pray effectively for the lost, what do I have to be? Holy. God has given us a tremendous responsibility, young people, a tremendous responsibility. And we can be a part of his outworking of the sovereign decree to redeem his church as we commit ourselves not just to preaching and going down and testifying on a street corner or going out on campus conquest or whatever we're going to do. We can be a part of the outworking of the decree of God in gathering his redeemed people by praying out of a godly life. Vital. And the, the supreme model of all is our Lord Jesus, who in Luke 23, 34, looked at the people who killed him and said, Father, what? Forgive them. Boy, that's the example of praying for the lost. It's certainly my prayer for all of us and for my own heart as well that we commit ourselves to begin to pray for the lost. Charles Goodell once asked, quote, if you were to open your desk and take out your diary, would there be in it any record of nights of anguish, of prayer for lost men, such as in the diary of the Son of God? David Brainerd labored among the lost Indians along the Delaware River, died very young before he reached the age of 30. He once wrote, I care not where I live. I care not what hardships I go through so that I can but gain souls to Christ. While I am asleep, I dream of these things. 
As soon as I awake, the first thing I think of is this great work. All my desire is the conversion of sinners and all my hope is in God. George Whitfield prayed, O Lord, give me souls or take my soul. Praying Hyde, missionary to India, said, Father, give me souls or I die. John Hunt was a missionary to Fiji. He prayed this dying prayer, Lord, save Fiji, save Fiji, save these people, O Lord, have mercy on Fiji, save Fiji. God answers those prayers. I believe that. You may be more effective in praying for a lost person than you can be in talking to them. You may be doubly effective if you do both. The late Gypsy Smith, Al Bryant tells the story. The late Gypsy Smith used to tell the story of the conversion of his uncle Rodney. Among the Gypsies, he writes, it was not considered proper for a child to address his elders unless spoken to. This would be doubly true if a child spoke to an elder on spiritual matters. So young Gypsy prayed and waited for his opportunity. One day the lad's uncle took note of Gypsy's worn out trousers. Son, he said, how do you account for the fact that the knees of your trousers have worn nearly through while the rest of the suit is almost like new? He said, I've worn the knees through praying for you, Uncle Rodney. Then he asked tearfully, I want so much to have God make you a Christian. Uncle Rodney put his arm around Gypsy in fatherly embrace and a few moments later fell on his knees confessing Christ as his Savior. God can use you to pray for the lost. Let's bow together in prayer.